Welcome to Reliance's Sunday Sermon. Worship with us at 8, 9.30, or 11 o'clock a.m. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. We are in a series called On Purpose. And um, on purpose just means we are people that are on purpose, not off purpose. And in saying that, we're kind of taking a wide look at purpose. Not so much your individual role. Everybody's got things that they play roles. What is our purpose? And so we've talked about three key areas that we think are three things. And those are worship, word, and prayer. prayer. Worship, word, and prayer. I hope that you memorize those. Worship, word, and prayer. And so we've talked a little bit about the prayer, and we've talked about the word, abiding in the word. And so today we're going to focus on worship. But I want to real quickly just say something. When we say that we're word people, we're not saying word as in like just add a little bit more scripture to your daily reading. That's great. Do that. I want you to do that. Read a little bit more. What we're saying is how do you take the word of God and treasure it in your heart, store it up, hide it in your heart so that when you're going throughout your day, it's not so much that I've added a couple more scriptures, like I'm treasuring the Lord's word and it becomes everything in my life. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? When we say the word prayer, we're not just saying like, hey, you should just add a few more minutes to your prayer life. That's what we're saying. Do that. That's great. But it's not about just adding a few more minutes to your prayer life. We're saying with prayer, be in constant communication with the Lord throughout your day, not just in your devotion time, but as you're walking in the streets and as you're at your workplace and at the grocery store and driving in your car and doing your swim lessons, whatever it is you do, all right? Like, be in constant communication with the Lord. Develop that word that says the Lord is constantly speaking to you and you're speaking to him. That's what we mean when we say we're prayer people. And then finally, when we say we're worship people, we're not talking about, okay, I'll sing a few more of your songs, all right? That's not what we're talking about. Okay, you've convinced me. I'll raise my hands in church. That's not what we're talking about when we say that we're worship people. We're talking about worship as a lifestyle that's surrendered to him. That everything that you do and everything that you are, you were created to worship him. You're a worshiper. Say, I'm a worshiper. You are, you're a worshiper, it's the truth, you're a worshiper. And so today, this is really what we're going after, is that worship is so much more than just a few like songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. Many people, they'll say things like, this is a worship service, right? People call their church services worship services. So we've identified that somehow worship is an hour and a half time frame. So when somebody says, are you a worshiper? You're like, yeah, I go to a worship service. That's not what a worshiper is. This is a worship service, meaning there's components of worship in it, but it's so much more. Anytime, any place, anywhere means that I'm with Jesus and I'm fully surrendered to him. That's what a worship worshiper looks like. And so for me, it took me a long time to understand that. I grew up in church my whole life. From the time that I was born, my daddy was a preacher. And so from the time that I was born, all I remember was being in the church. And so I didn't have a concept of what worship was. To me, worship was a service. Worship was some song. Song, 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 sermon, song. And I know I'm out of there, right? That's what it, I knew. I'm like, I know they're gonna do three songs. I know there's gonna be a sermon. I know there's a song at the end, and then we're done, right? And this is how I was. I was growing up. I was in the church all the time. We were at church all the time. And so I developed this understanding that worship was just a few songs, a moment, time, in service, and that was it. So I had no reverence for it. Had no awe of worship. I had my dad, on the other hand, he loved worship and he knew what it was. He knew it was more than songs. And so there were these moments and services, these moments where we were just ascribing worth to the Lord. Well, I was an honorary kid as well. 
And, um, and so I remember sitting in those pews, and as I was sitting in the pews, I always looked at worship as a time to jack with my friends, right? Or mess around with people beside me, or people watch, or whatever. And one of my dad's favorite songs was For Those Tears That I Died. Do you guys remember that song, For Those Tears I Died? And there's this, nobody? Wow. And there's, okay, few of you that are saved in here. All right, um, joking, kidding. Uh, so he, 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 there's this moment in that song where it's like, I felt every tear drop. And then it's silence. And it's supposed to be this time of just soaking into the presence of the Lord. Well, I saw it as a time to go, right? <laughs> and in a sanctuary, it reverberates. And everybody turns and looks at me. And I remember being by Ryan. I was like, just totally him. It was totally him, right? But they all knew, like, it's not sweet, innocent Ryan, because everybody loved Ryan. Ridiculous. <laughs> um, and so they knew it was me, and I thought, in that moment, like, I saw all these eyes on me, and it wasn't like eyes of like, oh, that was really cute, right? It was eyes of like, you're a moron. And I realized in that moment, I had drawn the attention off of the Lord, and I'd put self-worship and attention on me. And I began to just really feel that, like, in my heart. I was like, oh, that was not good. Like, I, like that was unhealthy. <laughs> and it was right after service, my dad caught me, and by caught me, I mean he blistered my butt. And... Um, and it wasn't that you did your popping noise during the song. He's like, I, I get it. You know, you're young. You make mistakes. He goes, there was this moment of like reverence and awe on yourself. Ascribing worth to the Lord. And you took it all off of him and you put it on yourself. And I was like, just spank me again. Don't ever say that to me again. Like moment of realizing how much self-worship I really like. How much I, I re, like it's, it, and it was like a shift for me of going, Lord, I don't want, like worship is so much more than just a song. And I began to realize that it was more than just music or a Sunday morning experience. In fact, I would say that inside of all of us, there's this desire. We want to be around things and experiences, things that we can praise and celebrate. Like we have a desire. We're driven for that. It's in our DNA to be awestruck. Like we love it. We love to be around things. Where we're like, oh, like that's really good, right? Jersey's going on here. This, this, we were created this afternoon, the Chiefs play, right? I see some jerseys going on here. This, this afternoon, the Chiefs play. Grown men and women will stare at their television screens, and they will scream, and they will yell, and they will be like, keep my playoff dreams alive, as though you're a part of the team, right? And we will yell, and we will scream, and we will be emotionally affected. We will be stirred up. We will either be on a high, or we will be depressed, depending on whether or not a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old man can catch a football and make a tackle. Like all of that, like whether or not this dude can catch the ball or tackle him will stir us in a high or a low. We will be emotionally affected by that and it will determine our day. Do you see how we are locked in of going, oh, I want something awe-inspiring? It's as though like we're, we're built to have this heart that goes, oh, I want to watch something amazing. I want to see something grand. I want to be a part of something that's massive. This is the way we're built. It's why we spend millions and millions or billions of billions of dollars each year to watch games or to be a part of sports programs or go to concerts. It's because we're all ingrained that we've got this worship thing in us. You were created to worship. It's in your DNA. You're a worshiper, so it's going to manifest itself. It's going to come out of you one way or another. Go to a sporting event. What do you do? You shout. You clap your hands. You high-five. You scream. Many of you cry, right? Like, We've got some worship things in us. 
And that's why we do it. Go to a, go to, as I said, a concert, football game. It could be anything. Go to it. Some of the greatest memories when you talk with people and you say, what's some of your greatest memories that you remember in life? They'll relate it back to a time where they saw the catch or they saw the shot or they saw the hit or they were at a concert and something got to their heart or they went somewhere and they saw this like moment, this beautiful picture, whatever it was, and it just locked them in. Go there and almost every single person be like, ah, oh, it was this awe-inspiring moment. I'm just going to confess, I can't stand KU. Amen? Anybody out there? I can't stand KU and don't have anything to do with KU. I think, like, I'm a K-State fan. I think there's a place up here for them, and there's purgatory for others. But anyways, um, just messing. Again, love you. Um, but in 2008, all right, KU fans, what happened in 2008 in basketball? You won a stupid national championship. Mario Chalmers is dribbling down, and there was this moment where Mario Chalmers, do you remember? Mark Chalmers is dribbling down. You're behind, right? And he hits the miracle shot. Do you remember that? Takes it into overtime. Takes it into overtime. Mark Chalmers hits the shot, takes it. And I don't even like KU. I'm sitting there the entire game making fun of them, talking about how horrible they are, ready for them to lose. And he makes the shot. And I jump up and I'm like, oh my gosh. That was incredible. I'm high-fiving KU fans. I washed my hands after. I'm high-fiving <laughs> KU fans, I'm like, this is incredible. I got so caught up in the moment because it was an awe-inspiring. I didn't even like them. I didn't even care that they won. It didn't mean anything to me in that moment. They weren't wearing purple, right? For a long time, nobody's been wearing purple, or ever, maybe, in the national chair. And so in that moment, like, I got caught up, and I'm high-fiving everyone. I was pulled into that moment that there was this awe everybody's like, that was incredible. And this is the way that we're designed. It sent chills down me. It was like, wow, that was incredible what he just did. It's wired. Worship is wired within us. We're going to give it to something, a basketball game, a football game, a concert. We're going to give it to a beautiful. The question is, who gets our worship? Or whatever, or God gets it. We're going to give it to somebody. So for us as believers, like worship and adoration, for Psalm 150 says, that starts off, that like kind of is the groundwork for our life in Christ. This is what we were created for. Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath, what? Come on, let's say it together. Let everything that has breath, breathing today. This is why we're here. This is why we're breathing today. It's to give worship where worship is due. Now, um, we begin to ask that question of, okay, well, why is this a purpose for us, and what is the purpose of life, and, and uh, what you'll find is there's a, there's a guy named Hugh Moorhead, and I was reading some research on him. He's 50, uh, 55 years ago. Hugh Moorhead, he wrote um, to all of these famous philosophers 55 years ago, all the big-time philosophers of the day, the scientists of the day, the authors of the day, and he asked them this question. He was doing research. He says, what's the purpose of life? Now, these men and women, these philosophers and these authors and these scientists, all these people did, they studied their life to the, to the studied people. They studied behaviors. They studied life. This, they'd given their life to the, to the study of life and people. And so he sends a, uh, sends a response to him. He says, what's the purpose of life? As far as I can to get responses back. And the first guy, Isaac Asimov, says, as far as I can see, there is no purpose in life. The next guy, Arthur Clarke, he's an author. He says, I'm afraid I have, I have no concrete ideas of the purpose of life. And Albert Ellis, 
a famous psychiatrist who studied tons of people says, as far as I can tell, life has no special or intrinsic meaning or purpose. And Gerald Frank says, in the cosmic scheme, I see neither meaning nor purpose. And Edward Gorney says, I doubt if there is one. And William Gasp said, there is no meaning to life. And Thomas Nagel said, I'm afraid the meaning of life still eludes me. And Joseph Heller says, I have no answers to the meaning of life, and I no longer want to search for any. So these are men and women that are responding back, and their whole life is dedicated to life research. And they're going, we just don't think there is any purpose in life. And then all of a sudden, you get to this place where all these famous philosophers and scientists, they're pondering life, they're struggling with what it is, and you got the Apostle Paul going, I know, I know. He made me new. He made me a new creation. He's going to write up. Jesus saved me and redeemed me, and he renewed me and restored me. He made me new. He made me a new creation. He's going to write about it to you in almost every one of his letters. You're new, you're new, you're new. And Paul's like, I get it, and this is why he says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 26. I, because I know the meaning of life, every step I take, I take, I'm reminded of who I am in Christ. Every step I take, I have purpose because I know the purpose of life. I'm a worshiper. This is what I do. It's who I am. And so... It's a big deal that we face as believers. It's been said, and we've said it in here numerous times, that the true battle that we face is the battle of worship. It's a war of worship. I've heard it a thousand times. We've said it a thousand times. From Genesis to Revelation, you'll see you're going to get it. Is battle for our life is who's going to get your worship? Are you going to get it? Is the enemy going to get it? Or is God going to get it? Who's going to get your worship? Worship, And so you're going to see this over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation, this underlying purpose of our existence of mankind is to be worshipers of the king. And this enmity, the issue that Satan has is stop worshiping him and start worshiping me. And you're going to see this tension constantly. And so from the beginning of time, we know this. We had a guy named Rob Nalder that used to stay going to the bush, these deep tribes, never seen a and he would come and he'd stay with us one summer. And he would tell us all about, he'd go into the bush, these deep tribes, never seen a white man before, never heard the gospel of Jesus, nothing. Just these deep tribes, barely, you know, right? Barely clothes or anything because they were in the deep, deep places in these, in these remote places in Africa. And he would find the same thing over and over and over. A mud ball stacked on another mud ball, right? And they would form these mud balls and they would call them their idols. So he'd come in and he'd say, hey, who told you that you should worship something? Like, I don't know, we've just always done it. Like, but who told you to make something and form something that you could ascribe awe to? Like, oh, that's amazing. Who told you to do that? And like, I don't know, it's just always been there. Passed on from generation. It's this design in our heart, this DNA that says, we're gonna make mud balls because we don't know who God is. We don't know who Jesus is. So we're gonna make mud balls and we're gonna stack them on top and we're gonna call this one the, the harvest idol. Right? And we're going to pray to the harvest idol. And if we pray to the harvest idol, somehow our harvest will be really good. Who taught you that? Who told you that? They, I don't know. We just know that we have to ascribe an awe to something. And this one right here, we're going to make another mud ball and stack it on there. And we're going to call this one our fertility one. And if we just pray to this fertility idol, somehow we're going to have really widespread offspring in our village. Right? And so... He's asking these questions like, who told you to do this? And they have no idea. All they know is that there's something in them that's causing them to say, worship something. Pray to something that's bigger than you. Ah, oh, if we pray to this, ah, oh, our harvest is going to be great. It's bigger than me. And so what you see is over and over and over, there's this need for all of us to attach ourselves to something that's like, ah, oh, bigger, bigger. And so worship was in the hearts of men. The problem was we were worshiping the wrong things. What's that mud ball gonna do for you? 
What's that mud ball gonna help you with? How's that mud ball gonna help you have a good crop, right? And this was the tension that you'll see throughout scripture when they were worshiping idols. Jesus is, or God is saying constantly, what's that wood carved image doing for you? Is it gonna save you? And so here's what we see. Paul addresses this to us in Romans chapter one. He gives us the answer. In Romans 1, 21, he says, yes, they knew God, meaning they saw God through his intrinsic values and nature. They knew there was something. That's why everybody's like, ah, there's something we're supposed to worship. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, like me and you and birds and animals and reptiles. So God did what? He abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Look, if you think the mud's gonna save you, all right, then I'll, I'll let you have it. If you think that trophy's gonna save you, Aaron, then I'm gonna let you, you, can, you go ahead and worship that thing, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you do it and see what it does for you. So God's going like, if you want it so badly, fine, see how it works for you. He abandoned them to do whatever their shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, it says they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. You see, this is the setup from Genesis three where Adam and Eve were like, we just don't know if you're good enough, God, so we're gonna try it ourselves." This is the great setup. And, and I think in our time today, this is what I wanna share with you. I think that in our time today, we're seeing more and more of that in our day and age. And there's a term that they label it. It's called self-worship. Everybody say self-worship. Self-worship. So a few months back, I got an article sent to me um, from a brother, and he had sent it from a group called the Gospel Coalition. And I love these guys. They're very rooted and, and grounded in the word. <clears throat> and they said these words. Self-worship, this was the title of the article. Self-worship is the fastest growing religion. Not Muslims, not Christians, not Buddhists, not Hindus. Self-worship is the fastest growing religion. I wanna share a few excerpts from this article. They, they wrote a book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. And the authors found from a poll, they polled Americans, 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. 86% of Americans believe to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things that you desire the most. And this one really threw me. 91% of the Americans polled affirmed this statement. I find, I, to, to find yourself, look within yourself. Now, here, here's the thing. All of that sounds good in our day and age. Yeah, to find yourself, look within, just enjoy who you are, enjoy your life. And, and things like, hey, at the end of the day, your highest goal, enjoy yourself. Just enjoy who you are, enjoy your life, enjoy your sounds, pursue your desires. Nothing else matters, pursue your In our day and age, all of that sounds fantastic. And we would even try to maybe bend some scripture verses around that to try to show that it's okay. Here's the problem. It's not biblical. And, and, and right now, I know there's tension in the room when you say that. You're like, what do you mean I'm not supposed to enjoy myself? That's not biblical. I'm simply saying, so listen, church, this is what he says in Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. 
Then he says in Colossians 1.16, which we talked in Christmas, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominion. Him. We were created to worship him. We are, everybody say, I'm a worshiper. And so this is absolutely going to war in our hearts because we do want to run to those things as 91% of those Americans polled believes is okay. We find that we're dissatisfied. We're not satisfied with life. We find that we're still running into all of our problems. We're worshiping a mud ball thinking somehow it's going to produce a harvest in our life. Amen? And so he says, social and political issues of the day. Self-worship lies beneath many of the most hot-button social and political issues of the day. He says, these are the six sacred commandments, not God's commandments. What are the six commandments of this self-worship religion that, that we find? No matter what, trust yourself. Commandment number two from this self-worship Your emotions are authoritative, so never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Even though scripture goes, hey, your feelings, like they deceive you. Number three, you are sovereign. You are sovereign in this religion. You are supreme, so always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. We even have a term that we use in this generation, YOLO. What is it, you only? Once, you only live once. I'm supreme, you only live once. At the end of the day, my chief end is to glorify myself. Number five, you are Number five commandment in this, you are the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with the notion of being a sinner who needs saved by grace. And then number six, you are the creator. So use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose and don't worry about what anybody else has for you. So what you see is you see these things. And again, like once you start reading those, you're like, oh, that sounds very self-serving. It's because it is. And you begin to realize, let me say it like this. I begin to realize in my life, ooh, there's some things that come in and like, oof, sometimes I think I'm in some of these. Here's the problem with self-worship. Besides the obvious problem of being a rebellion against God, when we try to be our own source of truth, we drive ourselves crazy, Amen. When we try to be our own source of satisfaction, we actually become miserable and unsatisfied. When we become our own standard of goodness and justice, we become self-righteous. It's simple. The reason is, is we are not God. We weren't created to be God. We were created to be, I'm a worshiper, say it. We were created to be a worshiper. This is what our chief end is. I'm a worshiper. This is what I do. We were never meant to trust in or be defined by or satisfied in or captivated by ourselves. We just weren't. God didn't create you so that you would be captivated by yourself. He didn't create you so that you would look in a mirror and you're like, I am a special human being, right? Like, I am the state. I'm in awe right now. I want to, you look in the mirror, you look and you see, somebody made me. I'm in awe right now. I want to know who that somebody is, and I'm captivated by him. I'm captivated by the fact that he made me. You, all of a sudden you go, it's not about me, it's about him. I'm captivated by him. I don't have to look in a mirror and be like, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not good enough. I'm to be captivated by her, save me. 
He made me. We were never supposed to be captivated by ourselves. We were made to revere somebody infinitely more interesting and awesome than ourselves. He had this quote. He says, a person, and he says, Albert Einstein, I feel like he's a pretty smart guy. He had this quote. He says, a person first starts to live when he can live outside of himself. The more self-absorbed we are, the less awe we experience. The less awe we experience, the less fully and freely ourselves become. Um, I'm going to say that one more time. We were made to revere somebody infinitely more interesting and awesome than ourselves. How many believe that in here? Okay. Now listen, there's a reason. Did you know that more than 30, that goes on in this article, more than 35,000 people, 5,000 people, that's nuts. I don't like a convenient trek to go to Mount Everest and hike it. 35,000 people, that's nuts. I don't like to hike stairs, amen? Come on. And 35,000, 3.5 million a year go to Yosemite. 30 million people a year go to Niagara Falls. Why? Because they want to stand on the edge of Niagara Falls and go, ah, I, this is awesome. They want to stand on the Grand Canyon and be like, I'm so tiny. I'm small. There's a desire in our heart because you remove yourself from that awe-inspiring moment and you go back home into your bedroom or you go back home into your cubicle and all of a sudden you go, I'm pretty big. I'm pretty awesome. Remove yourself from that and stand on the edge of the, the, the Niagara Falls or, or, or Mount Everest and all of a sudden you go, I'm small. This is awesome. And there's this desire in your heart in that moment to go, this is a worshipful experience. I'm small. Somebody created this thing and it wasn't me. Somebody made this thing and it's supposed to draw your heart to go, that somebody is Jesus. Instead of going, I am awestruck. This is incredible. It's supposed to do it. Because deep down, we crave that awe. We want it. We were made for it. And honestly, science is showing us that now. Did you know science kind of catching up with the Bible finally? Amen? There's a scientist out of the University of California. He shares this last part in this article. He's coined the term small self to describe this phenomenon. After exposing his subjects to several awe-inspiring things, the scientist found we found the same sorts of effects. People felt smaller they felt less self-important and behaved in more pro-social fashion. Awestruck people were more generous, more dialed into the needs of one another, and more caring towards the world around them. It's not about me. I'm awestruck. It's about him. Amen? Then another lady from Arizona State who studies behavioral uh, science found that not only does it increase decision-making, it drastically improves your cognition. She says, being in awe makes us less sub, sub, uh, susceptible to bad arguments and more responsive to good ones. Facebook, amen. There's a mountain of research from psychologists connecting experiences of awesomeness with a decline in depression. So here's this whole point, the whole point. Like, do you see this? Life is going, like all of us in this room, we're going, oh, I just want an awe moment. Oh, this is incredible. I'm so tiny. Somebody made this. It's what we're drawn to because it's how you were created. Everybody say, I'm a worshiper. It's why you're sucked into it. You're going to give it to something, and you're going to give it to someone. Will you give it to him who's worthy of it all? Now, here's the thing. 
All of this, though, is good except for this. As the Lord gets closer and closer and closer and closer in his return, there's this word that Paul's going to tell Timothy. And this word is a warning to Timothy. He's like, look, and I think this is why it's so relevant for us today. I think that self-worship is on a drastic increase. And Paul tells us, don't be surprised. He says, hey, Timothy, in the end, people be lovers of themselves. Mark this, Timothy, as the day's approach of Christ's return, people can be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, disobedient, rude, and he goes through the whole list of things, and he'll say these words, having a form of godliness. In other words, they still like God, and they're, they want to be in awe when he comes one day, but everything else right now is captivating their attention, having a form of godliness, but denying his power. Yeah, yeah, you're cool someday, God, when you come back. But right now, this is awesome. My new boat, or whatever, right? And so we're, we're giving awe to something, and he says, mark this, it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. So I'm asking you as the church, I'm prodding your heart, I'm prodding my heart, will we give ourselves over to self-worship? Will this become the pinnacle thing that gets the DNA inside of us? which is to be a worshiper, will this get us? Will we be more big on who we are and the things around us or more big on who Jesus is? Amen? All right, good. And we feed into this mentality sometimes. We say things like, hey, what's your passions? What's your dreams? What's your desires, right? We ask people that, and it's good. It's, it's not bad things, right? And we, we say, hey, tell me, tell me the things that you like. Hey, take this test. What number are you on the Enneagram, right? Are you a six? Are you an eight? Oh, they're, they're fine. They're fine things. It's not like it's a terrible thing. Or, or what kind of personality do you have? Are you a lion? Are you an otter? You guys know the personality profile test? Are you a golden retriever? And so what we, this is what I am. This is what I do. I'm a lion. This is what I am. I, I'm, I'm an eight. And so this is what I am. This is what I do. I'm a six. This is what I am. This is what I do. I'm a lion. This is what I am. This is what I do. And I want to say, no, it's not. It's not who you are. You're a worshiper. Before you were ever an eight or a six or a lion, you were a worshiper. Now you say, why is that important? Because here's the problem. We take these tests and they're good and we figure out our track in life and everything. And, and somebody's going to come one day to you young people especially. Maybe you're sitting out there today and you're feeling this way. And you're going to take a test and say, you're supposed to be a doctor. That's what your test said. You're supposed to be a doctor. You're going to go to medical school and you're going to be miserable in medical school. And you're going to be like, well, it says I'm supposed to be a doctor. This is what I do. I'm a doctor. This is what I'm supposed to do. And then you're going to get out of medical school, and you're going to go in, and you're going to start your own practice, and you're still going to be miserable. Even though you're making money and things look good, you're going to be miserable because you're like, this is what my test said. I'm supposed to be a doctor, and I don't like it. Look, before you were ever a doctor, you're a worshiper. And when you understand that you're a worshiper, you can be a doctor and learn to worship in the culture of being a doctor and you will be satisfied because you're a worshiper first. And you can be a construction worker and you can be on your construction site and you're a worshiper first. And when you're worshiping the Lord and you find places to worship him. And so whether you're a doctor or whether you're a construction worker, when you believe that you're a worshiper first and this is what you're created for, it won't matter if you're swinging a hammer or seeing if somebody's sick, you will find that every place is about worshiping the Lord. Woo! All right, so let me just let me weave some scripture in here to show you throughout our history from Genesis to Revelation that this is the word of the Lord. Exodus 7, 14. Do you guys remember? Moses is getting his people. God says, go set, tell Pharaoh to set my people free. You guys remember that? Plague comes, plague comes, plague comes. 
until eventually Pharaoh sets him free. <clears throat> in Exodus 7, 14, Moses is like, what do I say? What do I say to Pharaoh? How am I going to get these people free? There's a million people. What am I going to do? The Lord says to him, the, uh, announced to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to tell you, let my people go so they can what? Worship me in the wilderness. Pharaoh doesn't let him go. Moses is like, what do I say now? Like, what do I need to say to Pharaoh? He didn't, he didn't do it. He says, here, Exodus 8, 1, here's what I want you to say. Go back to Pharaoh and announce to him, this is what the Lord says. The Lord's like, Lord, I've asked him, oh, worship me. He didn't let him go. Moses comes back to the Lord. He's like, Lord, I've asked him over and over and over. He's not letting them go. What else do you want me to say to him? The Lord didn't go, you know what, okay, since that didn't work, he doesn't want you to worship me, so let's, let's just change it up. Be comfortable with me. Go tell Pharaoh, I just want my people to be comfortable with me. That's what he says. He says to Moses in Exodus 9.1, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And at the end one, we know a million people walk out of captivity, right? Because God will always get his way. And he said, my people will worship me. And the beautiful thing is, before they would ever enter the promised land to be worshipers, like, oh, we got all the things we want, now we can worship, he will leave them in the desert and he will teach them to be worshipers in a harsh place. Before you may enter into the good seasons, can you learn to worship him in the hard places? Can you? Because this is what a surrendered life looks like. And this is what a life of surrender looks like to the Lord as a worshiper. If I can learn to worship him in the wilderness, the promised land is cheesecake, baby. It's beautiful. So, here we go. He's saying, I want you to set them free from bondage so that their first priority in the order of what they do when they come after me is that they're worshipers first. Not so they can see miracles, not so they can have everything handed to them so that they can learn to worship me. And then we know what happens. They get into the desert, right? And Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's meeting with the Lord to get the Ten Commandments. They have no idea. He's been gone for a long time. And what's ingrained in their heart? We've got to worship something. Moses isn't coming back. We've got to worship. It's in our DNA. So what do they do? Give me all your gold. I'm going to fashion into this awe. Oh, it's bigger, it's big, it's huge. This awe-inspiring golden calf, and we're gonna worship that golden calf. Do you think that golden calf is gonna save them? So here they are, because they're drawn to worship. They're gonna go, we're gonna find something, and if it's not the Lord, we're gonna find something. And so this is awe-inspiring. It's bigger than us. Let's worship this golden calf. So Moses comes down, right? He's ticked. And he sees the golden calf. What does he do? He takes the first set of Ten Commandments, and he throws it, right, kind of a thing, right? The Ten Commandments, he throws it out there, blows essentially that thing up, and then he's sharing with them when he comes back down with the new Ten Commandments that the Lord rewrites. He says these words, and I find it interesting, by the way, the first other gods before me. He says, oh, and just in case you try to Jesus juke me, when I say you shall have no other gods before me, here's the second one. You shall not make for yourself an image. Because you'll try to play me like, oh, well, we don't worship other things, but I have this little thing. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven or above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or what? Worship them. You see this in the New Testament as well. Jesus comes and the wise men come and 
they bow down and they worship him. You'll see it with the Samaritan woman Jesus encounters and she runs off and she worships him. And you'll see it with Jesus' life as well. Jesus is in the wilderness fasting. In Matthew 4, 8, he's being tempted with all of these things. And the enemy goes, you see all these kingdoms? I'll give them all to you. All you have to do is worship me. This is it. Just worship me and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. And at this point in time, the cross hasn't happened yet. And so Satan has, he's got some authority in that. And Jesus says those famous words in Matthew 4, 8. He says, Go, Satan, get away from me. It is written, you shall worship your God alone and serve him only. And serve him only. And here's the thing. Satan's telling Jesus all these kingdoms I'll give to you. Jesus could have taken the easy way to do. He was getting them anyways. Sometimes we want to go around the hard way to get to it the easy way, and that's not the way God's calling you to do it. Worship him requires, worshiping him requires surrender sacrifice oh, one last thing I, pro I promise it's tiny see okay so what, what does this look like practically then? We've, we've surrendered to you we believe you Lord okay I'm in you're all ah, I want to stand and see your awesomeness you created it all you made me stay okay so what does that mean then so in in service we, again, we come in here and we worship. There's songs that are played. You'll see the, the, the lyrics on the screen. That's a, that's a portion of worship, practically. Um, there are times where you'll see people get on their knees. They're not singing the songs. They're worshiping. This is still worship. When you get on your knees, it's that sign of adoration. It's going, you're the king, and I'm here, and like I just want to tell you, I ascribe worth to you as the king. Oh, you're awe-inspiring. This is worship. I don't have to sing. I can worship him this way. There are times when you'll see people raise their hands in here, right? You see people, and if, you, if that's awkward, raising your hands, there's a Tim Hawkins video I wanna send to you. It's about how people raise their hands and serve. Anyways, it's really funny. Um, they worship with their hands up because this is the universal sign of what? I surrender. I sur this is the, I surrender. They're not being uber spiritual. They're not being, look at me. They're going, I am in all of you. I surrender. And then there are times even where people will bring their flags. Sometimes in this service, sometimes in the 930 service. It's just these flags. And they begin to raise their banner. And they begin to just put their flags around. And that really makes people uncomfortable. And I'm going, why? It's not a charismatic thing, church. Raising your flag and raising your hands and getting before the Lord is not a charismatic thing. It's a Bible thing. When David would get worshipers and he would get his instrument players, some would carry a banner. And the word of the Lord says, carry a banner before the Lord and wave it before the Lord. It has nothing to do with being charismatic. It has everything to do with being a worshiper. So when you see the people waving their flags, they're going, ah, oh, I'm in awe of you, Lord. I'm awestruck by you. And here's the thing. Oh, I'm going to say it. If you watch the Chiefs game today, every time they score, what do they run out with? A big Chiefs flag, and they go crazy. And That's normal. High five, right? But you see the flags in church, you're like, weird. How is it weird? You just celebrated at the Chiefs game. 
Or you see people raising their hands and you're like, oh, those people are weird. And you're the same guy who lifts his shirt up to belly bump somebody, then slaps them on the high knee. It doesn't get any wiggle. But it, and everybody goes, normal, normal. But in church, you get low before the Lord, you raise your hands before the Lord, you get a little rhythm in your dance, whatever. Somebody goes, weird. He's bigger than the Chiefs. Oh, ah, you stand at that place. You're awesome, God. I just want to pray over you. Father, today we pray. Just close out time, Lord. Somebody created the awe of who you are. It's not about me. Somebody created me, and that somebody is you. Somebody hung me go, ah, every time I see it, every time it's supposed to make me go, ah, you did this. You did it. I worship you. I'm a worshiper. I was created to worship you. It's in my DNA. And so, God, I pray, first and foremost, that we would have a life of surrender to be worshipers to you and you alone. I pray that we would know that's our purpose. It's what we were built and created for. Help us to be worshipers. And then I pray, God, that we would realize that everything in my life, not just to love their wives as Christ loved the church, those can be a form of worship because your word says for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The way I treat my children can be a form of worship because you say, fathers, do not, do not despise your children or cause them to get into anger. Life is about worshiping you. Thanks for tuning in today. To find out how to get more involved, go to reliancecommunity.org. Have a great week.